I'm Kyle. And I'm Jason. And this is Monetize Media. Back after a long break. So we've been gone for a little while. Jason, we haven't taken our own advice. I believe in our most recent episode where we recapped our first 10, one of the 10 tenets of a successful content business was consistency and consistency being key. And sure enough, we did not take our own advice. So I don't know. I might push back on you. We were consistently away for the summer. So, I mean, there, there was some consistency, just obviously jokingly was not doing the pod. But I think the listeners will understand when we kind of start to talk about some things that we have coming here in the future that you know our time was not being wasted in what we now think we can bring as value to the show. So here's our goal. If you've, you're listening to this, we plan on being regular again every single week with an interview and having the show back into its normal rotation. We recorded episodes through the late spring and early summer on a weekly basis, and then have been away for about two months. Part of the reason is had some competing vacations. We were also wrapping up, as you know, if you've listened to any of the episodes, we sold our business and we're with the acquiring company. We were wrapping up some of our duties there, uh, particularly at the start of football season, but we are unwinding from that and starting a new venture. So that's kind of eaten up a lot of our time over these last couple of months. So we'll be back to regular. And Jason, you want to also add the new wrinkle we will be adding to the show before we get into today's episode? Yeah. And just for pure clarity, we have been busy with the unwinding. We have not been busy with the new project because... Because of said unwinding. <laughs> because of said unwinding. So yeah, we. I think this is going to be really good. I think the listeners and new listeners that this is going to bring on are going to love this. You know, We're going to build something from the bottom up. And you know, you're going to hear our tactics. You're going to hear the challenges. You're going to hear everything. Certainly going to be going through how we're going about building a team, you know, looking at a P&L, Everything that goes into the minutiae of you know, starting a new venture online and building an audience. And we're doing it in verticals from which, some verticals from which we are not familiar. So that should make it much more interesting and challenging. So it's, uh, and we're going to work that into the weekly shows. I'm not exactly sure if we'll do its own show. I think we probably will. But I think our audience will really appreciate and hopefully take some great learnings from this. And I think we're going to put a lot out there too to the audience where we will even maybe be asking for some help from our listeners. Yeah. So here goes me butchering sayings again, but I believe it was the Hair Club for Men commercial that said, not only am I the president and CEO, I'm also a client. So we're kind of going to be our own clients in a way. We're going to have guests on, talk about what they do, give advice, weigh in, ask questions, note the opportunities. But at the same time, we're going to be building something from scratch and chronicle that along here with you and hopefully maybe get some learnings from the audience as they hear what uh, we're up to. So we'll unveil more details of that in the coming shows. Yeah. And as you said, perhaps if it goes well, um, we'll actually incorporate it into its own weekly rotation and update on what we're up to. So yeah, please give us feedback on that if you're, uh, if you're listening, which I keep saying, and I guess you are. So we're a little out of reps here, but I do want to shout out one of our listeners who's uh, contacted us multiple times during the break here, Addison at D-A-D Robs on Twitter has informed us that he's told two friends multiple times about the show and they told two friends and he has told so many sets of two friends. So it's a good multiplication table he's built of telling people. So hopefully he appreciates the shout out. And again, if you like the show, you like what we're doing. If you find this show or future shows interesting, make sure you tell two friends, tag us 
on Twitter, either at Monetize Media HQ, all one word, at Kyle Scott L, all one word, or at J Zernick, Z I E R N I C K. On Twitter, that you've told two friends, and we're happy to interact with you. We've even had a call with some listeners about their business and what they're up to in content. Free, gratis, right? No consulting fees here. Uh, we're trying to build a loyal audience. So if you're working on something and like what you hear, the benefits of not having a massive show just yet means you can get some access to us for free if you like what we have to say. So with that, let's get into this week's episode and the returning episode of the pod. So I believe our 11th interview. And on today's episode, we speak with Ross Pomerantz, the man behind the wildly successful business humor social media accounts, Corporate Bro. Corporate Bro. Love it. Ross has become the avatar for corporate sales bros across the country particularly in the Silicon Valley. He's amassed a massive audience with workplace humor, which is a trend we've identified in content. He monetizes through advertising, apparel sales, advisory opportunities, speaking engagements, and his new investment arm. You know, it's a corp cap, I believe, corp capital, a very interesting side of the business. Listen now as Ross walks us through his process of creating a steady flow of content, using his following to create business opportunities, and why pushing the envelope allows him to stand out. On to the interview. All right, I want to welcome onto the show Ross Pomerantz, the guy behind Corporate Bro, aka Corp. He's a content creator and entrepreneur in the business content space with an obvious bend towards humor. He's built a multifaceted content business, monetizing in a handful of ways in different verticals. Basically, Ross, you are ideal guest for this show to talk about growing a content business. Welcome to uh, the show. Thanks, guys. It's uh, I'm honored to be here. Glad to hear I, uh, I hit all the criteria what you guys do. Yeah. We like people who are doing more than one thing because it allows us to explore just, you know, if we don't want somebody on who's like, hey, I'm taking ad revenue or I'm taking uh, (laughs) influencer checks. So you're thinking about it in all the right ways, it looks like. Also enjoy your background. Very nice. Thanks. Yeah. You know, it's amazing what you can get on Etsy. Turns out three feet is a lot larger. For those who can't see, there's just a, a corporate bro sign behind me. It's three feet in diameter, which is absolutely massive. And so dumb, but you know, it's good. It's framed well here. It's framed. Yeah. Right well. Better know. than my crooked picture frames. I'm like in the process of moving and my background will improve eventually. I do get Joe Paterno vibes from it a little bit though. Oh God. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> That's, I hope just like the, the football vibes, I guess we'll leave it at that. That's the only, you know, maybe the respect up until a few years ago. Yeah. Paterno up to 85. Yeah. yeah. Up to 1985. There yeah. The background image isn't turning his head to anything. He is looking straight on. Ah, <laughs> oh, very yeah. nice. Very good. Very good. Yeah. Love that. Oh, we're going to do well here. So, Ross, we ask everybody to give their origin story, right? You know, you weren't always a content creator. So, start. give us the origin of how you got into the space creating content, how you developed your personality, and how things got started for you. Yeah. So, I went to Occidental College in LA. I was a undersized baseball player. I thought I was going to the big leagues. After school, I pitched a couple of years of independent minor league ball. And like most washed up athletes, uh, had no hard skills and ended up in sales of some sort. I just happened to end up at tech sales at Oracle. And while I was there, you know, I, I going to school in LA, I acted in a bunch of films, never just friends making films. I was never like a film major, acting major, nothing like that. I just did it because it was kind of fun and they asked me to do it. But while I was at Oracle, 
I started making little Vine videos, six second videos, old platforms, basically TikTok before TikTok was a thing for anybody who's young enough to not remember. And it turned out as I made these videos that, you know, again, they, I made them for fun, but my team enjoyed them. And then so a few other teams were like, oh, when are you going to make more videos? And then other teams at Oracle and Oracle's 100,000 person company. And I was working in a building with a couple thousand of them. And so it kind of just became one of these little things that I did for fun. And over time, it turned out that the videos I was making resonated with folks who were not my friends or coworkers or family. Uh, that was always the fear or the thought was like, oh, it's funny because it's Ross. They know who I am. They get the context. It just so happened that my topic, which was for the most part sales and business and being uh, a young corporate professional with no idea what the hell they were doing, turned out that resonated with a lot of people. So it kind of grew from there. Vine sunsetted, turned, you know, Instagram became, started allowing video content. So I just repurposed the vines on Instagram. Then I, I got lucky and a couple of super reputable publishers wrote articles about me, bro Bible and total frat move, just the pinnacle of journalism. And it kind of catapulted the account to, you know, around a little over 10,000. And that's when I started. It was really 2015 when I started putting some rigor behind the process of content creation. And I basically, my goal has been to put out one video a week, every week. And I've probably done a little bit more than one a week on average, but that's what I try to do. Some, some form of sketch comedy around life in the corporate world. I think it's such a, I don't want to say a trend now because a trend does a disservice to what it is. Like Maybe the nichification of everything, but being able to create content for people in specific industries is just something that really didn't exist you know, prior to social media 10 years ago or whatever. It sounds like you were surprised to see that there was an audience for this sort of corporate sales guy humor that might otherwise just sort of be passed around from cube to cube or something like that. Yeah. I mean, I, I think it was just one of those things where it's like, do what you know. You know, if I had kept playing baseball, I probably would have ended up making something around sports. So that's my other primary thing that I spend time doing. It, it just, it was lucky, I guess, in a lot of ways. Now there's, you know, there's so many different corporate blanks. That's TikTok has really popularized this like niche content creation. It was just very much an accident. It just happened to be what I was doing and living at the time. And it was honestly catharsis because sales was miserable. And uh, it was a good way to just bring bring some levity to an otherwise pretty tough job. How long were you in the sales game? I did sales for about 10 years. And I 10 years can absolutely feel that pain. I mean, it, at the end, it is you can't imagine for some listeners who at the end, like you can't imagine doing what you have to do that morning, like it, you just getting out of bed, it's hard. Like, I can't believe I have to do what I'm about to do still Yeah. when you start to hate sales at the end. Yeah. I mean, it's it's hard because, you know, most people will be like, oh, salespeople, I fucking hate salespeople. But there's a lot of us out there and it's not all kind of the old adage of Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross, old dudes on the car lot selling used cars, whatever, that kind of stereotype. It's, it's a lot different now. But yeah, I mean, to wake up and be like, okay, I got a cold call 100 people who want nothing to do with me. Yeah, like you feel sick when you wake up in the morning. And so that's where the mantra sadness came from. It was kind of sales is so much sadness, but also stands for sales are dope, never ever stop selling. It's the a new version of ABC that more encapsulates the like, the true feeling, the soul sucking kind of nature of making those cold calls, losing deals, people yelling at you, people just pissed off. And, you know, it's a very, it's an emotionally tough job. To do. So you're creating this content for fun early on, and then you see you're getting some traction and you're getting esteemed journalistic outlets like Bro Bible. And we know, we know some of the guys over at Bro Bible writing about you. So now you get some traction, you have an audience. And that, from my experience and talking to other guests, that's like 
you know, just a little bit of gasoline on the fire. Like if you have a little bit of fire to create content, now people are consuming it and people you don't know, and they're interacting with you. Now you're like, oh shit, I got to keep going. I'm getting an audience. How do you keep growing that? And how do you, you know, get to where you are today? And then we'll kind of dive into each of the areas specifically. It's honestly, it's harder and scarier um, when you realize, I mean, everybody knows how social media is now. Everyone, Everyone's going to give their unfiltered opinion. They can hide behind the keyboard, hide behind the username, whatever it is, and talk shit or, you know, overwhelmingly positive for the most part. But suddenly it became a bit of an obligation. They tell you be consistent, right? It's like, okay, I knew every Wednesday at 10 a.m. I would need to have a video ready. And so people would just come to expect that. And for me, it became just how consistent could I be? And that's where it gets to a point. And that's one of the tough parts about social media. It's a lot like sales where your quota resets every quarter. And it's like, you may have done well that quarter, but now no one gives a shit because it's a new quarter. And so every week it's I also liken it to being a starting pitcher. I, I was a starter for a lot of years and it was my whole week hinged on how my start went. If I if I dealt, I was king of the world. If I didn't, I was not in a good headspace. Like I got to go back out in there and do this again. Only in social media, it never ends. The season never ends. So that's probably why and where I started trying to figure out what's what's an end game here. How can I like not have to do this or what other things can I spin up? Because I by myself, I don't scale in any way. And that's always the huge issue for a creator is how do we you know monetize and build a business that doesn't require us to physically be there all the time. And I admit, like even all the things that I'm sure we'll talk about today, they don't necessarily all scale either. They still require a lot of my time and attention. Uh, yeah, you touched on something really interesting and that's scaling scaling yourself. Were you protective of the brand, the content? Because it's very easy. I've been here. You know, it's very easy to say, okay, we can get someone to contribute, right? But they're not as good. They're not as funny. They're not as consistent. And early on, you, you don't have the way to pay them or anything. And so much of it was built around your personality. How difficult was that? Like on a weekly basis, being like, shit, I gotta be funny again next week. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's friggin' hard. I, <laughs> you know, the people who, are in the videos with me that many people will see. It's it's my brother, it's my cousin, it's my friends, it's whoever's willing to come hang out with me on you know a Saturday or Sunday in, in an office and just kind of fuck around. And content creation now, it's pretty lonely for the most part, unless you're in like a sketch group. I find for myself, it's like if there's people around me, I'm way more inspired. Like we can riff off each other, we can play off each other. And that makes it a lot easier to be funny than it is to sit in this office that I'm sitting in right now and try to write, say, oh, okay, let me write something funny today. You know, you want to like pull from inspiration. You want to be inspired in some way. And I think what's gotten harder for me is that I'm not in the office every day. I'm not in a sales pit. I'm not having the one-on-ones with my manager anymore. It's all pulling from memories for the most part. And obviously like I have a pretty good ear to the street in terms of the following and what I hear and you know, the companies I work with and so forth. But it's not the same as having like those real authentic moments. And I'm like, holy shit, that's a, this is a video right here. What's happening in front of me. How are you getting access to office space? Because I found in a lot of your videos, like the setting of your skits, like it obviously adds to it, you know, having, you know, like the, you know, the cheesy background is one thing, but to actually be in an office and doing it the way you are, it adds to it for sure. How are you pulling that off? Yeah. Well, early on, I mean, I can walk you through it. I mean, early on I was shooting at Oracle managers would disappear. I would shoot, do it at the end of the day, lunchtime, I would shoot. <laughs> then the next one was at Glassdoor, which was a gorgeous, you know, classic startup with the ping pong tables and the beer taps and like on the water. It was just, a, I mean, visually, it was the perfect office. Eventually, I was disallowed from filming there and kind of became a nomad for, for a brief period of time, basically putting up on the IG story, hey, who's got an office we can shoot in this weekend? And, you know, a few people came through and this one CEO of a small company was like, hey, you can come here whenever you want. And this place was just like a 
kind of a warehouse, horrible acoustics, just absolutely terrible. But, uh, you know, we may do with it. Now we're at a point where similarly, we go to this office in the Presidio here in San Francisco, and it's more or less like a VC kind of owns it, but it's more of office space where he's like, if founders come into town or people that need, need workspace can just go use it. And he's like, you can have a, here's a key, like go in whenever you want on the weekend. And you know, it's functionally, it works. It's got a conference room. It's got like a shitty little kitchen, kind of a sales pit looking area, but it's very gray. There's not, there's none of the character and like logos and my character is the best word character on the wall. So it's a little bit more gray, but functionally it puts us in an office. So it makes it a little bit more believable there. And we've been there for five years, six years. So what point then, you know, you're kind of already early on thinking about how do I scale myself? And it sounds like if, if I'm reading between the lines, you're kind of thinking about how do I turn this into a business, an enterprise, a brand that isn't just me creating videos. So what was the next step you took after that? Where you're like, I got a following, people are watching, I'm on Instagram, I can't do this forever. What happens next? Like, what was the very next thing you did where you're like, this is the direction, this is how I'm going to monetize and so on and so forth? Well, I'll step back for one second because you asked a question earlier that I didn't answer. It was thinking about brands and who do I work with and what do I want to do next? So it kind of, I held off for six years. I didn't make a cent for six years. I didn't want to. I felt like, okay, the money will come. I just need to keep growing. I need to stay authentic to the brand here. I need to just like keep growing. Like growth was always the number one. KPI for me because I was only posting once a week. I didn't want to dilute like a quarter. If I post one ad, it's a quarter of my content. And I was trying to figure out how do I not blatantly monetize the audience's eyeballs and like the, the ad sense. Now that's not to say I don't do those from time to time. I definitely do those. They tend to be enterprise companies. I, I, the amount of people who come up to me and are like, Hey, can you shill my CBD gummies? You know, and I'll give you two bucks, like a bottle. No, I'm absolutely not going to do that. I'd rather take 20K from a tech company to do a single reel because they they close one deal, one enterprise deal from my post. It's 10X ROI for them. And I don't want to operate off that. So to answer your question, the next step was like, what are the options here? You know, most creators, and, and I took these, what most creators would do and should do. I created merch around sadness and kind of the sales. I wanted to be I wanted to be on everybody's desk in America. I wanted to have like my gimmicky mug on there that says sadness or have you updated your forecast or whatever like quote I could put on there. Did the shirts and then Cameo came along. And for those who don't know what Cameo is, it's a really cool website. Basically, you can go on there and request personalized videos from A-list to Z-list celebrities and they all cost different amounts. But one of the things that I found, I was one of the first five or six creators on that platform just because one of the founders of that sold at LinkedIn. I and his friend was a sales manager at Glassdoor where I worked. He's like, dude, you should try this thing out. So I company started paying me to be like, yo, yell at my sales team to work harder. Or someone would be like, hey, my buddy just got promoted. Can you roast him like for XYZ? And that was one way. And again, this doesn't scale, but it was 30 seconds of my time, 100 bucks, 30 seconds, 100 bucks, 30 seconds, 100 bucks. And that started to add up a little bit. I think that's where I went first was like, I want to give people the opportunity to rep this brand, but not be like forcing your eyeballs on something that isn't, that is totally irrelevant to you, which most enterprise companies that I work with are irrelevant for the most part. You're just hoping you get like a VP of sales who sees something. Most of my followers are, you know, they're high earners, but they're not necessarily decision makers in organizations yet. You need one really important guy in your audience to make that ad worthwhile for the client, basically. Exactly. Exactly. But they know they're there. They know like in terms of those tech, that tech audience, that affluent tech audience is is here. 
So it's no guarantee. Like I can't promise conversions, right? Like that's one of the things I'll never do is I, I just don't know. The algorithm's always changing the way these companies present ads. They suffocate them. They push them. They, it just changes. It's just out of my control. Was it surprising to you when you were like, people will pay me to get 30 seconds of me emailed to them? Yes. It was extremely weird. Is that a weird moment? Dude, it's so, so goddamn weird. I mean, like some people would send me reaction videos of like somebody freaking out on the verge of tears because I sent them some video like talking shit to them. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, this is cool. You know, I'm happy to, I'm happy to do it. It is, it's still one of those things that doesn't feel real. Like who really, why do people give a shit about what I do? To see things like that, it doesn't get old. Like I'm not so famous that I need a, a posse or like an entourage protecting me. It, it always feels good when people stop me on the street and they're like, hey man, I love your videos. Great. And, it, and it's never been like that weird or that incessant. And there's certain places in San Francisco, like I, I, I don't go unless I'm prepared for that type of interaction, but it's still weird to me because I'm just a, just a dude, <laughs> just a dude making videos, like doing the same shit everyone else does, going out and golfing like in their free time, like playing fantasy sport. Like, I don't know. I don't think there's anything particularly special. So that it's, feels weird. Was there a point at work where it got awkward? Like you started to get big and then people you worked with like knew who you were and you're like, uh-oh, now like my boss is now. Yes and no. Like I'll say from the start, I was prepared. Like if this was going to blow up, I was prepared to go down with the ship. Every day I was prepared to get walked out. It, it never happened that way. In fact, the companies that I worked for were very cool about it to a certain point where eventually they were like, you can't film. You can go do your thing. Go do whatever you want on the weekends live your life, make content, but you can't do it here because there's too much risk for them. I am not a clean comic. You know, I'm pretty raunchy and vulgar at times. So they stood to gain nothing from that. My friends, managers, like they all knew, they all loved it. They, you know, I'd post and the next day, they'd come in and give me their feedback. Dude, I fucking love this part. Or I, you know, was this, was this part about me? I'm like, nah, dude, maybe, <laughs> but, but like, you know, <laughs> for the most part, it was, uh, Everyone was very supportive. It would it started to become weirder when people would interview. When I was working at Glassdoor, people would interview and be like, "Yo, I hear Corp works here. Is that true?" And they're like, uh, "Like, yeah, he does. Like, he's fine. <laughs> you know, he does his job here." So, were you good at sales? Uh, was I good? Yes, I was good. Was I great? No, because I this is gonna sound bad. I just didn't want to be. Like, it takes a certain level, like to be great at anything. Like, you have to care deeply about it and like really push to be the best. I was just like, how do I hit quota and then get my next video out? Like, I was spending part of my day writing scripts or like taking notes on things that happened that I could then turn into videos. I was doing what I needed to do to get to this point. I I knew it was gonna it was only gonna last for so long until I had basically this you know, the fork in the road and which way am I going to go? Am I going to push down this sales route more? Or am I going to go uh, do something else? So I was very capable, but I just, I like, I didn't care enough to be the number one person. Did you dread the idea of the career path at one of these companies? Normally the top sales guy becomes a manager and you see where you're going. Because for me, that was where I was like, oh my God, this, this sounds like hell. I'm pretty good at this, but I have no interest in doing those next steps. So you begin to then the entrepreneurial juice kicks in what the hell else am I going to do with the rest of my life? As soon as I hit my quota, to your point, I'm working on what I actually care about. I think that's exactly it. It's, it was a means to an end. And I knew it wasn't what I wanted to do for forever. Just full stop. I knew it was a great skill. I felt like at the time after, and you know, you probably felt the same after 10 years, that there wasn't too much more to learn. Truly. Like I can run it. I could still run a sales call right now. Would I be as sharp? Probably not. But like, I know the checkpoints. It's it's like a pitching delivery. Whether you're in Japan and you've got like a unique delivery or you're in the US and like 
have really standard. You all hit the same checkpoints. You all hit the balance point. You all hit the stride. You all hit the separation with your arms. Like that's how it is in a sales call. You hit the same checkpoints regardless of how you get there. And so I felt like I just wasn't being pushed intellectually anymore. So I needed to go do something else. I was just like genuinely bored trying to figure out what was next. It's funny. This is almost the story of everybody who's successful on their own. You know, I mean, usually someone's successful on their own, they're highly competent, right? They're highly talented in something, right? But when they're working, they're good enough to get by, right? And give like 60% of an effort and get by with 60% of an effort. Whereas people elsewhere are given 110% just to like approach their quota. We've heard this from other guests. Like, you know, they hated their job, but they were good enough just to get through it so they can do what they needed to do. All right. So you've touched on two of many sort of tentacles of your business here, right? You touched on the merch side and you've touched on Cameo. I think Cameo is pretty self-explanatory, you know, opportunistic. It's not a long-term business thing. You know, you kind of get the money while you can. Merch can be. So how deep did you go into merch? Were you just drop selling, you know, drop shipping? Did you try and run a, you know, an e-commerce brand where you're looking at margins? You're like, I get 5% here. If I get better shipping rates and, and this, I can cut my cost here. Like how serious about the merch business are you? I would say the majority of it is still drop shipped. And that's purely out of like an inability to, I've spent time packaging stuff like Santa's little elves from time to time. And I absolutely hate doing, I mean, that's a whole wasted day of me doing. And I could outsource that in a lot of ways. I am looking at the margins still. I Baseball guy, I love good analytics. So I can go in there and I, I mean, I love crunching the numbers and seeing if I do this, then, then that. But I got to a point where it's drop shipping stuff there. You can pay more for better quality stuff, but it doesn't quite have that same weight. And so for example, like this hat I'm wearing right now, it's sweet commission. It's got the headset on it. I partnered with a golf brand called D Hudson to launch these hats. Like they have great hats. They have great golf gear. And I wanted something that was less about the margins and more about like, I wanted something quality and like, and substantial. And I do those as kind of limited merch drops from time to time. I'll buy hundred, 200 and drop them for like a day and they'll sell out in, you know, a few hours. And so people get hyped about those. And honestly, it is, it's just a bitch to get that. Like it's a three month lead time for me to get them from, uh, from them. Cause they've got so much shit going on much bigger than, than me, but that's where I would like to go. I would love to partner with act, like legitimately substantial brands and launch lines that way. But the reality is I don't have as much time and I don't think I'm candidly, I just don't think I'm big enough to support something like that. So I think the merch store, depending on what I do is, I don't know, 20 to 30 grand a year is somewhere in somewhere in that area without ad, I don't do really do ads. And that's just kind of I'm okay with that. Because I, I don't think that's necessarily the long game for me either. You know, it's just a nice thing to have. Yeah, that's why I asked because the merch store, you know, all of a sudden it's easy. You have a following, we have a hat, go buy it. It's drop shipped. You set it up, you come up with some slogans and it's relatively easy. I assume the mugs are relatively easy. But to your point, if you really want to do uh, you know, all of a sudden you're in the retail business, right? And you're you're trying to get the materials for the hats and then it's, am I shipping it? Is somebody else shipping it? You know, what's the packaging like? And all of a sudden you're, it, from my experience, you know, we sell Eagles, uh, you know, like third party unlicensed shirts. When they went the Super Bowl, I did the elves thing like you did. And I've told this 10 times on the podcast, you know, I spent it six weeks in my garage stuffing envelopes and all of a sudden, like, I'm not a blogger anymore. I'm a, I don't know what I am, an elf. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It's not fun. Yeah. And you're, it's a different headspace. You know, you're sitting in front of your computer being creative. It's the entire other side of the brain when you're looking at a spreadsheet and, you know, what is your margin on t-shirt? So then you have Cameo, you have the merch, 
you're maybe opportunistic with, I don't know, I say sponsorship more than advertising for big corporate sponsors. What else did you start looking at and saying, okay, I can, this is an opportunity that I can go into? Yeah. So this is kind of like, they're similar, but different here is basically I started to become brand ambassadors. Not the, word, the right word is like advisor in like the startup world is I would basically, companies would bring me in, in some sort of like cash equity package situation where I would spend an hour, two hours a week with their leadership team, their sales team, their marketing team, whomever. And honestly, for the most part, affiliate with their brands. People look at what I do, especially I have a huge presence on LinkedIn, like which is a hilarious social media platform that is most people don't spend a lot of time on, but it's a it's its own unique beast. But when I talk about companies that I like, when I talk about products that I like, when I talk about uh, leadership teams that I think are good, people seem to listen and they seem to care. And so when I affiliate with certain brands, and there's obviously very competitive spaces, depends on what it is, you know, if it's sales intelligence tools or sales compensation tools or just a general SaaS company, people are like, oh, he affiliates with this one versus that one. So I'm going to go with this one. And, it, and it, for whatever reason, it works. And so these companies are basically paying me to affiliate. I can go on LinkedIn and say things that nobody else can. Because for everybody else, they have jobs, they have professional reputations, they can't say the truth, I can say the truth. So I can be, I'm not going to say troll, because that's not that's not quite what it is. But I can be extremely sarcastic and wry on there. And that plays well. So I can subtly jab and attack and go on the offensive in ways that other people can't. And so that can drive a lot of, you know, eyeballs to to these to these brands. So that's where that's where I'm working with founders. The other piece was, okay, how do I monetize this audience that I have in a way that isn't constantly buy my shirts. And that's where having gone to business school, I was like, Oh, well, shit, I should start a fund. I mean, these are salespeople. They're all, they all make good money. They don't have access to private investments, you know, pre IPO investments, and they're highly risk tolerant. You know, they're, they're investing in crypto. They're like in the stock market, they're AMC, GameStop, you know, they're wall street bets type folks. So what if I could like pull them together and start making, placing our own kind of bets, if you will, on, on early stage companies, more educated bets. And so that's where Corp Capital came from, basically, was, you you know, you still have to be an accredited investor. So in other words, you got to be, have like a million plus in assets or have made 200K for two years in a row. And for many salespeople that they are the latter there. And so I, now I think we're about 400, a little over 400 folks in there. And each month, my partner guy I met in business school, he and I basically vet deals and bring them to the table and say, Hey, here, here's a company we're interested in. Here's why we're interested. We write the memo. Do you want to participate? And so our model is just a syndicate model. Basically, that means every deal people have a choice to enter, not a typical fund. And sorry, if I'm like, this is just basic level shit. No, this is good. Yeah. But a, a typical fund is everybody pools money together right off the bat. And we could say, Oh, we've got a million dollar fund. So my partner, Matt, and I could go deploy a million dollars however we want. 250K here, 100K here, 25K here. Versus this one, nobody gives us money up front. We basically say, hey, this founding team gave us 100K in allocation. Minimum buy-in is a grand. Who wants to be a part of it? Here's why we're excited. And we, Matt and I put money in every time because we don't want to bring deals that we wouldn't. And it fills up just like a merch drop or it sells out just like a merch drop. And so that's pretty much the model we run. And so you can pick and choose which deals are interesting to you or not. Or some folks are like, I'm just going to put $1,000 in every deal you bring because that way they're hedging, right? Classic diversification. And so that to me, the more we can do that, and you're starting to see it, you know, 
the chain smokers are huge in this world. Will Smith is big in this world. Ashton Kutcher was like one of the first kind of Hollywood A-listers to like go in on this. Let's build a fund. Like let's join the VC world and start investing. But not as many people are doing it around their audiences. And that's where I'm like, this can be an interesting end game for me. If we, a couple of these companies do well, Matt and I get paid on purely on the success of these companies. We don't get paid anything for like the work that we do. The hope is that some of these companies pop off and then we get paid as a result of that. So I've seen some people in the business space doing this. I think like, you know, Sam Parr, The Hustle, Packy McCormick in like Web3. Yeah, I've seen a few of these names doing it. So I want to dig into that more because that's a whole different, that's a whole different piece. I want to go back to the advising for a second. So I guess first off, selfishly, how do you get into that? Because we're interested in that, right? And we're trying to find our way, like, hey, we have a expertise in digital monetization and, you know, particularly affiliate content, advertising, stuff like that. And we know there's an audience for that. But I think for so many creators, that is maybe one of the most profitable ways to monetize their brand. It's so easy to get the ad dollars, the merch dollars, but where you can get big checks for not a ton of time and make that impact is probably in advising and lending your name to something or just giving genuine input. So how did you get started there? Did someone come to you and the light bulb goes off like, oh, I got to do this? Or did you start prospecting for clients to work with? And then also how much of it is your advice that they want and how much of it is you, the brand, the personality they want? Yeah. A lot of good questions here. So the first, the first thing that helped me like candidly is, you know, I went to Stanford and that like immediately was a stamp of approval from a lot of founders and folks like, oh, this guy isn't just like a sales jabroni just popping off on his Instagram. And so, you know, I started to have conversations with founders or even VPs of sales, just like networking as anybody does at events or people would just reach out to me and be like, Hey, I want to understand like what you're doing. And for a long time, and even still, I give a fair amount of my time to people who just want to talk about whatever. And I kind of would work it in there and basically say, yeah, I've worked with these companies. I've studied go-to-market strategies. I've seen what works. Like I have, the one thing I have that most don't is just, I have a very good I think I said it earlier, ear to the street of what's happening. Like I can find out what's happening inside an organization better than most leadership teams can because I've got a bunch of peasants who will tell me the dirt. They'll tell me what's up. And so the first advisory role I got, they actually reached out to me. It was originally around a sponsorship deal. They wanted me to like make some videos for them. And I was like, I'm really not interested in doing this like transactional kind of relationship here. If you want me here, then you're gonna I'm just going to get corporate bro. You're going to get Ross. And like, here's how I want, I would like to structure that. And I basically, I just kind of pitched it as that. And it, that's what it became. And so then you know, once you get your first one and the next few are much, much easier. And so I, um, I think I work with like eight companies right now. And to answer your question about whether it's Ross or Corporate Bro, I think it is, it's probably 75% the audience or the affiliation with the audience and 25, you know, go to market. They have like Packy and all, and all these other like Silicon Valley folks, these like, who have raised money from VCs, they have access to like, get me in touch with the former founder of blank who did the same thing. And I want to get that playbook. Like I don't have that playbook, but what most of the time they're trying to do is how do we appeal to the underling? How do we appeal to that sales peasant? Like what's the voice that needs to happen here that can cut through the clutter? How do we structure incentives for our salespeople so they don't quit on me? Cause everyone keeps quitting. You know, it, it's those types of things that I have much more experience with that I think gives me the credibility to keep, to keep doing it. It's just about getting that first one. But I talk about it all the time. I, I bring it up constantly as a way to like kind of 
incept different founders at the, at the idea that I can do this for them. How does that work in trying to understand on the LinkedIn side, the way I was hearing it before, depending on who you're working with, you're obviously brought in for advising on the inside, but on the, on the front facing part of that, if you are doing say a promotional video for them, walk me through how that is. Like, is it a type of thing where potentially we, you can use your kind of comedic edge to kind of like rip on salesforce.com because who you're representing here has an edge there on some type of platform or service? Yeah. I mean, so LinkedIn, like the primary functionality of LinkedIn is like anybody who interacts with something, it then goes out to their network. So it has like a very viral component to it. And so when I'm getting, you know, a couple million views on my profile by itself, because people are always like, oh, who's this corporate bro? Like, who is the guy behind corporate bro? And like, why does he, you know, say I use LinkedIn a lot like Twitter, but like strictly business Twitter. And people then go see which companies I'm affiliated with. And therefore they're like, oh, these companies have an edge to them. These companies aren't soft or scared or like they're more authentic to my voice. And so for LinkedIn, the companies may come to me and say, hey, we want to do like this single video. And I'm like, okay, well, here's how I would do it. And they may say, oh, this is probably a little more than we want to. And if they really push it to be a lot more than they want to, then I'm like, I'm not doing it. And I'm not the right person for this. Like you can go have anybody go read your little script about how you're disrupting blank with blank. Companies have to be, they tend to be smaller that work with me just because they don't have PR departments. They don't have like the same HR oversight. They don't have like the brand guidelines that have to be strictly X or Y. It's the company, it's the smaller, more agile companies that are willing to take risks to try and cut through Like they want to go at Salesforce. Salesforce doesn't give a shit. Salesforce is so big. Salesforce is so massive. They're, they will just like laugh. It's like a little, not even a pinprick that anyone feels. So like, as long as you're punching up, right, then Salesforce doesn't care. These companies don't care. It's, it's like a little opportunity to cut through the noise with something that is not as vanilla. And I think that's why it works, especially on LinkedIn. Do you find conversion and the ability to reach audience and impact them on LinkedIn is off the charts compared to the other social platforms? Absolutely off the charts, like six, seven X every single time like on a even average, mediocre to average, like below average post, it just does better. It's so sneaky good. And it's not right for every content creator, you know, if they're just doing mass market content, but I think it applies, you know, for people listening, you know, we had someone who was in the weather meteorology space, right? And they were starting their own weather network, right? But so many creators, I think could better use LinkedIn because you don't realize a good chunk of people are on there. You know, people who are out of college basically have to be on LinkedIn now, you know, so you do have normal people there. It's not just all professionals talking professional stuff and the ability to reach people and target who you're reaching is pretty insane right now. And they also just launched a whole creator program. Like they are going in, you know, and it's, it's comical because they're like, I'm part of their like creator program. And they're like, we just introduced the ability to like do a carousel post or now like, and I'm like, yeah, Instagram and TikTok, they've all had this for 10 years. Like they're introducing all these features that I'm like, yeah, no fucking shit. Like you're so far behind, but it's actually great for that, that same reason. Like there is the competition is so massive on TikTok and Instagram and these other, you know, Facebook's basically dead, but like, it's so much easier to cut through on LinkedIn. It really is. It's, it's like, uh, it might as well be a brand new social network at this point. There's like an arc of all social networks where, you know, they hit that TikTok probably hit it like a year or two ago or like escape velocity. And then they reach mainstream, probably TikTok is right now. And then they just get flooded with shit, right? Hey, do you think that will happen to LinkedIn? Do you think maybe they're protected a little bit because people on LinkedIn, there's not as many 
I don't know, maybe there is, maybe you can help me here, but I don't think there's many spam or bots as there are on Twitter and Instagram. You basically have to be a real person. You have your face on your account. You have your corporate, your professional identity tied to it. So is LinkedIn a bit more protected against that that stuff than certainly Instagram, TikTok, Twitter are? I think so. Uh, yeah, I definitely think so. I mean, they, they become a little more lax on a lot of things, partially because the, the content was so boring for so long. You know, that it was really easy. I got kicked off the platform a couple of times because I wasn't, quote, a real person. So eventually I had to make a company called Corporate Bro in order to keep posting my stuff. And then I just stopped giving a shit and started posting as Ross, which kind of was a strategic choice that I think helped a lot was kind of like, who, who is the guy who's doing this stuff, which allowed me to do a lot of different things. But for LinkedIn, yeah, I mean, it's so much harder to create a fake profile. It's so much easier to just be like, yep, fake, fake, fake. And there aren't the auto chat bots yet that they're, they're really good at detecting that stuff. Even if they've been cracking down on people sending LinkedIn invites for years. And so like, I think they're pretty on top of it comparatively. Like there's generators that'll generate a thousand TikTok accounts for you or a thousand Instagram accounts. I don't think that's really a thing for LinkedIn at, the, at this point. It will deal with those problems. The long game seems to be working out really well here for LinkedIn, especially I mean, you have Bob Iger and Elon now just, I mean, drip, drip, drip. I mean, we're becoming more and more clear what's happening at Twitter. I mean, there's a lot of issues with, you know, security issues with TikTok too. So, I mean, it's, if you asked me a couple of years ago where I think LinkedIn would be trending, it, it certainly would not be as the one who's certain, starting to look like the more secure future growth platform. It is interesting. It's like the running a social network is so goddamn hard. And it's like, it's just impossible to get perfect or even mostly right you know, with all the issues with your bots, with politics, with like the spam and the bullying. It's, it's just like, there's a lot going on there. And LinkedIn is best equipped right now. It just in its, its overall architecture to, to handle that, I think at the moment, but I'm sure we'll see something new that I've never thought of. And that is scammy and whatever they'll have that they already have their own problems, but it'll be wild to see what LinkedIn looks like in five years. So on the corp capital side, it's digging more to that. That's a, you know, that's a whole nother beast. What has that been like over the last two years? You know, 2021 was like peak investment, right? People are looking for some sort of yield on their cash and then everything turns late last year, early this year. So what are what have both sides of that space looked like for you? I know, you know, it's probably still early and you're I'm guessing haven't had seen the exits yet, but and just start, you know, spinning that up and how much of your time does that take up? Yeah. So we've been going, I guess, about eight months. And so there has it has good timing <laughs> yeah right <laughs> it's been it's been fine like I, I think in terms of the audience that we're working with like a thousand bucks a month is most of them have vices that cost that amount whatever it may be whether it's their jewels their you know their joints or or you know their big partiers like so we've been more cautious about bringing deals to the table like i think it's the best time this is when you get the best valuations. This is when like the best opportunities come up because the companies that are pushing through this like are legit. You know, there's a lot of paper unicorns that are shitty companies that, you know, you could have thrown up on the street and raised 2 million on it. And like now, now that's just not the case. And so a big part of what we do is very educational, like financial education on how does this stuff work? And I think because we're, we're not holding money right now, we have to actually interact with our LPs. So we have a Slack group where we're constantly just like, hey, what, what's the appetite here? What are you guys thinking? What, what are the profiles of companies that you like? I think what we're doing right now is hopping in more of like Series B raises just because they're safer and they're, they're overwhelmingly led by the best 
VCs in the world. So who's going to do better diligence them who have been who are about to give 25 million or us who's about to give like 150k. It's going to be them. So like we have a lot of social proof for these things. So we haven't really seen those issues yet, but it's also great because none of these companies are public, so we're not having to see revenues go down and stock prices go down and valuations necessarily go down yet. But I'm sure we will for a few of them. That's just kind of the nature of the beast. And we're always lo- we're looking 10 plus years. Like anyone looking shorter than 10 years in this game is making a mistake and going to be let down. So we still feel like we're so early. It doesn't really matter. It might actually even be work out better for us in the long game. How do you get the allocations? Just through who you know, networking? Yeah, exactly. I mean, I've reached out to founders just flat out. I've messaged them on LinkedIn and been like, yo, I love what you guys are doing. We'd love to talk about it. Like, you know, I've got a group of 400 salespeople who would love to be a part of your next raise whenever that is. And the truth is most people in SaaS, like, if they don't know who I am, they are also excited by the thought of 400 salespeople, like being back channel, you know, advocates for them, mm-hmm. you know, and like, if they need and most of these companies need to hire salespeople at some point, so they can come to us and we'll be like, yeah, let's all tap our network and see if we can go find you your next head of sales or whatever your next account executive to go do blank or blank. So it's a nice network for them to tap into for an extreme, like a hundred K out of a $25 million raise. Like they, they just don't give a shit. Like the, the value that we can bring comparatively is much higher than any of their other quote unquote strategic angels that they may bring in who their friend Joe, who like was part of another IPO, just going to give him a hundred K and walk away brings absolutely no value. He's just like, he's just my friend. So we'll let him into the you know cap table. So we do feel like we actually bring a little bit more than your typical angel investor. They get that grassroots support. Exactly. And so like they'll announce like a test product market fit, I assume, you know, with Yeah. Or they'll announce stuff on LinkedIn and I'll be like, all right, savages, like let's all go on there and hype this thing up and like gas up this this announcement so people can see that, you know, we're a part of it and that other people will start to see this company too. So we can kind of help with their little their PR campaigns. I don't know if Jason's still here, if he died, if his <laughs> yeah, web connection so. died. All right. So a couple more and I'm sure Jason will be back. So uh, you do speak in events, right? I guess what made you decide to get into that, right? And then I want to kind of get into like a sense of you don't have to give hard numbers. You can if you want, but your overall revenue mix, like where is your time spent? And then where, you know, revenue pie dollars. Yeah. So the speaking thing, like it just came about because someone asked and like I come from, my dad's a like a sports journalist and author and my mom has been, you know, like in business for 45 years and they both do a lot of public speaking. And so I was forced to go to public speaking training as a kid, which I highly recommend anybody doing. It still terrifies me. It still eats me up inside. But I was asked if I do speaking events and I was like, yes. And so I basically just had to create something and went and practiced it, trained for about six months on it, and then just went and did it. I didn't have, unfortunately... Or fortunate, I, don't, I guess it worked out. But like, you know, the luxury of going to do open mics in front of 10 people in like a dark bar. My first event was in front of 3000 people. And so that was kind of like, a, that was a baptism by fire. And that's where I kind of learned. It's really like how you say stuff versus like what you say. And if you don't come off as you're bombing, you don't ever bomb, you know. And so it was more of a learning experience on how to conduct yourself versus like what to say. Because certain jokes didn't land. And I went back and, you know, go back and watch the tape as any good comic or athlete does. And I just like rework them. And most people don't remember what the hell I said three years ago. So I do that. I do a few of those a year. Now they're in person. I did like a hundred over COVID all virtual. I enjoy it, but it's not really where I want to be at the end. It is fun. There's nothing like a crowd cheering for you, but it's the mental toll it takes on me to get up in front of that many people and prepare each time is it's pretty painful. Are you just spent for the week after that? Com- complete. Like I am 
absolutely toast. I don't sleep for the whole week leading up to it. Yeah, it's it's one of the more draining things you'll or I've ever felt is being done with one of the, with one of those. It's also one of the best feelings ever. So it's kind of a weird masochistic thing that I chase. It's this is I was the same way in baseball. I would show up to the clubhouse three hours before anybody else would, and I'd sit there and everybody knew don't don't talk to me like when I'm starting, and then it would be done. And it would be the greatest feeling ever. And I was like, why do I want this? In a weird way, I wanted the pain. <laughs> so. Uh, so it definitely is kind of like translated over. It's very similar to the speaking thing. So where do you want to be? So you said, that's, you know, it's not necessarily where do you want to be? Like, so what's the goal now? Like, where do you want to take the business? Where do you want this to go? The brand? And then just a couple of last questions. Yeah. I mean, honestly, like I, so I just got done shooting an eight episode show. I would like to be acting and writing comedy, like full stop. I would like to do that. It doesn't have to be business related. It you know, can be anything related. I just like creating stuff. I like writing stuff and I like seeing it come to life. That's probably the most exciting thing that I do. Now, would I ever fully give up the corporate bro stuff? Depends. Like the advisory stuff, I probably wouldn't give up. Some of the speaking stuff, I would, I would still go do speaking things. I still want to keep one toe in the Silicon Valley side of things. There's just, it's too interesting to me and I have too much now invested literally and figuratively in it. But yeah, general TV and comedy is what what I would love to do. If that if HBO called and said, "Hey, come be on this," you know, the next three seasons of X or Y, I would say yes instantly. I feel like there's like a, a role in succession here that you know, yeah, you yeah, know, a small three episode part that just ends with like a you know a fuck off to you because something just went terribly wrong, but. I mean, I'm ready. If they're ready, I'm ready. You know, <laughs> uh, they can tell me to fuck off all they want. You know, that's already spent 10 years getting told that in sales, as you know. So Absolutely. I can't get hurt anymore. What is your, if, if you don't want to ask, I'll ask you, like, what does your mix look like in terms of revenue? Like just pie. What does the pie look like in terms of sort of how do you drive? If we're saying percent, I would say probably 50% is brand deals, which is some like some prepaid amount for X like total videos. And then like, then I would say about 20%. Like if I'm just talking about like a dollar amount, unrealized dollar amount, I would say another 20, like the next 25% is probably corp capital. I like the potential of investment. And what did I say? So 75, I would say five is probably merch. Another five is cameo. Advisory stuff. Yeah. And I'd say five is, speaking and then 10 is advisory after that it might be 105 but we won't hold you to it is it 105 i thought it was 70 I, was, I wasn't counting along the way 50 25 10 5 i thought it was 85 well you know what 105 it is then i got 105 <laughs> percent. i might have fucked it up someone go back and check the tape i don't know i was trying i was like fuck dude don't mess this up <laughs> <laughs> credibility's gone immediately i'm not a math guy we got calculators for that yeah, I, I was told no math would be involved. Yeah. You never do live math. That's like one of the rules of, of broadcasting on any medium. Was there a point here where you're like, all right, this isn't going to work. Like I'm doing this. I got followers, but now it's like colliding with my job. Was there any point where this isn't going to work? It's going to fail or, you know, I suck. I can't do this. Oh, I suck. I can't do this. It's just a daily thing. <laughs> like I dream, I, I've dreamed of the episode where like I have like, Corp quit, retire, throw himself off the Golden Gate Bridge. Uh, one of those things depends on how dark I'm feeling that day. I definitely have the battle with myself. It's you know, it's it's the classic. Can I do like two things pretty well, or in my case, can I do ten things pretty well, or do I want to do like one thing exceptionally well? And the battle is always when I'm focused on one thing. I'm like, why the hell am I like 
I'm stressing about something else that I know I need to do, but and I, therefore I can't focus on the one thing. I'm like, why am I doing all these different things? But at the same time, I, I think who I am needs that context switching from time to time. So I like doing a bunch of different stuff. It means all my days are different. It means that there is no like super repetitive piece. There's always admin work. There's always writing and writing is pretty, it's not repetitive, but it is the act of sitting down and trying to like brainstorm is takes a lot of time. But right after business school is basically when I said, I'm going to reveal who I am, that I'm Ross. And because for the longest time, corporate bro was always hidden. The Google searches, what's corporate bro's real name? Where does corporate bro actually work? Like, who is this guy? I decided after business school, I'm just going to come out with who I am. And if it throws away corporate prospects, that's good. I want that. I want that to be thrown away because I want to be forced to go down this route. You know, I think this is for better or worse. Like I have fall often for worse is that I have fallback options. You know, it's the people who are, who have no other choice that you see them just like busting through the wall and like making it happen. And cause there is no other option. I definitely admittedly get crippled by having other options, which is a great problem to have. Like, to be clear, it's a great problem to have, but I definitely feel it at times where I'm like, ah, who gives a shit today? I can always do this, you know, which is not what I want to feel. Cause like my heart doesn't actually mean that. But I'll say that because it's an easy way out from time to time. So, you know, I, I think I'm going for now until something absolutely forces me to, I'm going to keep doing a bunch of different things. And switching to your real name is probably one of the best decisions you make. Because I think, you know, 20 years ago, not that even had the option to have this sort of persona out there, but you couldn't attach yourself in a professional way to that sort of content. I think the world is so much more accepting of that stuff now. Like I think the Rubicon was crossed probably sometime in 2020 where, you know, Dave Portnoy is on CNBC and like, okay, like, you know, it, nothing matters anymore. And I don't think we're going back to, you know, straight laced white collared shirts and everyone's got to play a certain role. The people who stand out, you know, stand out for a reason. Right. For better or worse. I mean, it's like you see it in journalism now. It's everybody gets their headlines from World Star Hip Hop, you know, or Barstool, and nobody knows what's real. Everyone just assumes it's all real. And like, it's definitely created an interesting world, this, this social media thing. And like, I'm fortunate enough that it's like part of my job, but I also see a lot of the downsides. I feel like mentally, like candidly, I go to therapy for this shit because it is so draining. It is so like social media itself is, it's toxic in a million different ways. And to spend so much time in it, I, I literally have to go to therapy for it'd be like being an athlete and not working out like that's my version of work i mean i still work out come on but it's that is my version of trying to stay healthy in my job we are very pro therapy people <laughs> yeah i mean you know <laughs> I, that's the world we're moving towards too i i think for me it's just part of basic maintenance of like being able to stay in the game so to speak just because there's so much shit it's very easy to get lost in social media too, assuming that, you know, what you see and what you, you know, pick your feed every day is representative of the world as a whole. And you could, and I blogged, you know, like in literally my parents' basement for a few years when I started my site and, you know, I would come out and be like, none of these people on this street or the store I'm in know who I am or know anybody on my Twitter timeline, like none of that stuff matters. It's this tiny subset of people that are all talking about the same thing. Yeah. The algorithm has chosen that everyone thinks is, you know, then you go look at somebody else's feed and they have, a, they see an entirely different world. It's hard to, you got to remind yourself of that sometimes. Yeah. We get stuck in our bubbles. It's really easy to do. And we all think we're unique and that like it's that our way is like the way. And it's just, there's a lot of shit out there, people, a lot of stuff going on. So it's hard to stay up on all of it. Ross, do you have like a tool or something that you absolutely cannot do without? 
in any aspect of, of the business, tool, person, anything. I mean, I, I guess I would default to my phone, like right off the bat is like the most, I mean, my whole life, I... Well, wait, you're a SaaS guy. So give us a SaaS tool. Like you got to have, you could pl- plug, talk your book here. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> SaaS tool here that I use. I mean, Slack, honestly, the amount of Slack workspaces I have for like CorpCap and then the companies that I work with. And then my own like personal one for, I started like a super fan one many years ago that people had to pay for. And then I was like, eh, I don't want to make you pay for this. And so I didn't. And it's, I've got like a small group of people that I still talk to. It's, it's easily the biggest communication tool. It keeps me like very siloed in different places. And so Slack, you're welcome, motherfuckers, wherever you are. <laughs> Salesforce. I mean, they are a Salesforce company. So Slack is definitely how I do most of my communication, especially with these companies. All right. So pl- plug away. This has been great, by the way. It's been great. Plug. Where can people find you? Give you know all the places you want to want to steer this this particular audience. Yeah, you can always add me on LinkedIn, Ross Pomerantz, Corporate Bros on LinkedIn. I mean, you know, Corporate Bros on every social media platform, whether it's TikTok, IG, YouTube, LinkedIn, so on and so forth. And then hopefully in March, everyone watches the show. Sad sales are dope. Hoping to premiere that at South by Southwest, but we still we still got a long way to go. We're still like in the heart of editing right now, so we'll we'll see. I, I say that tentatively. Best of luck with that. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, Ross, thanks so much for joining us. Hang on a sec when we're done here. But uh, yeah, thanks so much. Thanks for having me, guys. No pleasure. Okay, so that was Ross Pomerantz, aka Corporate Bro. Love this one. I feel like he's he's one of us, Jason. Shares a very similar outlook on growing his business. What's stood out the most to you? It'd be very kind for us to be... Uh put into the same bucket as a Stanford grad, you know, but I'll take it. I'll take it. What stands out to me is his natural ability to understand what works for him, right? But this is the thing that and you know, we always see these continuing trends, right? He quickly recognized that the daily grind of trying to come up with skits and all of this process, you know, was just something that he was not going to be able to do and it was going to beat him down a bit. So he developed multiple channels to go out and get revenue. And that to me is where, you know, we talked about it with uh, Jessica and, 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 uh, and the docs and how, like you have to be able to do things that make you comfortable. And if you're dominating that and you're feeling comfortable, then you are going to be the most successful within monetizing your audience and your approach. And that's really what stood out for me from Ross. I think the business content is, we mentioned this in the open, I believe, but I think the business content tailored to specific industries, and we might have more to say about this, about our our new venture in the coming shows, but I think it's a real untapped niche. And we've been trying to have him on the show, and I would like to one day. There's this guy out there named Dooner, and he's with a subsidiary of Freight Waves TV, which is like an industry publication and channel for the shipping industry. And they've built this basically like barstool of trucking called What the Truck. And it's like a live daily show they do. It's for truckers. And it makes a lot of sense when you think about it because guys you know, and girls spend countless hours driving trucks across this country and you know, frankly need something to listen to. And that's one example. I think corporate bros another. He's speaking to sales guys. And there's all of these people, you know, choose your industry, doctors, nurses, veterinarians, you know, whatever it is, lawyers, sales guys. They all share kind of a similar daily grind. And there's a lot of inside jokes, humor, culture, context, 
and probably most importantly, advertisers that speak directly to these people. So Ross has been able to tap into this for salespeople across the country, of which there are you know, many. And it's got to bend towards the Silicon Valley type salesperson. So I could see a Wall Street version of this, and there's accounts like Liquidity that do this well. But I think we're going to see an explosion now in people targeting specific industries, specific jobs, things like that. I think that's a great opportunity. And of course, it just goes with like the natural advertising set. And to me, it seems like what Ross has doubled down on is that sort of sponsored content where he takes almost an advisory role and businesses are able to leverage his following and audience and his expertise. And then he gets, I guess, you know, a little bit of upside if the business works out well. Yeah. Monetizing the inside. I love the way you said that. Like that kind of like the inside jokes of the corporate world is awesome. And on the, I don't want to call it non-professional side, but on like the less professional way of it on his uh, TikTok. You know, he's got 152,000 followers and he has these hysterical skits in this portrayal of certain things that we all recognize in the corporate workplace. So he has that side of it, but then he has, and that's corporate bro. And then he has Ross Pomerantz on LinkedIn where he then is, and this, this is amazing to thread the needle of like that crazy wacky stuff on TikTok to, hey, by the way, I now can be extremely professional, intellectual, and help your brand grow. I can come in and advise. I can do sponsored LinkedIn posts. I can come and speak to your employees at a corporate event. I mean, the, this guy is, is, is as flexible as flexible gets because he's a supremely intelligent human being and he understands things and to be able to work in the humor. I mean, we all know that. Like, you know, you ever walk into a situation and somebody cracks a joke you are immediately feeling much more relaxed. And to be able to have that power, which he does in any situation, is absolutely amazing. And he's found a way to monetize it. And he remains on brand. I think he said this, we're recording this a little after the actual show, but if I recall, he said, you know, that's important to him when he works with these businesses, he gets to be his persona, you know, and they value that because it's authentic. It's who he is. It's who the brand is, who, you know, the character is. The humor, particularly in this B2B thing we're talking about here, or B2 worker thing, content to worker, I guess we call that C to W. Can we create that C to W, content to worker? C to W. So there's the CW TV station. We might have a trouble. We might have a corporate branding issue. Patent. Patent issue, patent lawyers. I'm not sure they're large enough to even employ a lawyer at this point. <laughs> it's reruns of Seventh Heaven. It's a great show. What a show. Dawson's Creek back in the day. I could really age myself here if I wanted to. Yes. I went to college with James Vanderbeek's sister, went to Villanova, I believe. I don't want your life. <laughs> That's varsity blues, obviously. Yeah, now now you've lost all the twenty two year olds. <laughs> but I, I think uh, what are we talking about? So the, this content to worker thing. You know, all these industry trades, Jason Barrett talked about some early episode, you know, they're kind of a trade publication for the radio industry. And they're very, you know, straightforward down the middle. A lot of these trades are like that. And I think when you come in and you're able to be natural, you could be this bar stool of X, you know, because it's just so new to people, you know, not reading a stuffy old trade magazine. And I'm not calling the uh, Jason Barrett a stuffy old trade magazine. They have some life. But a lot of these trades are definitely just that. you know. And I liken everything I've ever done back to Crossing Broad, the site I founded. But we weren't the first site to try and be funny or snarky about sports. Far from it. But we picked a niche in Philadelphia where everything was covered by the local newspapers and all these legacy sports talk radio types who've been around for 30 years. 
And, you know, they all had a very specific vibe. And we're like, you know, we're going to take this TMZ style barstool meets TMZ style vibe and cover the antics around sports. And it was just unique and different and it was refreshing. And I think that's what someone like Ross, you know, brings to, you know, to his audience and where I think there's a huge opportunity in business content. It'll be interesting to follow him and his career because I, I imagine he is going to pivot a bit as he gets more life experiences and more job experience, things of that nature. Not that not that what he's done already is not enough, believe me, don't get me wrong. His creativity and all, I envision him having kind of like a new vertical of humor at some point in the future. And yeah, it's going to be interesting to see which way he goes, which direction he goes. Uh, yeah, that's a good point. I think this is one of those things where most outlets, you know, most things that have a following, their audience ages with them. So if you think about a popular author, I mean, not that I listen to public radio, but here you go. A popular cable news talking head who's been doing it for 30 years. You know, take Bill O'Reilly, who's kind of out of the game, right? But my guess is his audience skewed older. He was around for a long time. Those people were with him. I don't think the 28-year-old hardcore Republicans were, were dialed into Bill O'Reilly as much as they may have been like Tucker Carlson or Hannity, right? So you have these people who have audiences that kind of age with them. And with that comes different life experiences. So right now, you know, Salesbro is talking to the 20-something sales guy who's got to meet his quota, you know, the t- kind of stereotypical buff sales guy going out there, partying on the weekend, making calls, hitting numbers, pumping fists, right? Like that's the archetype of his audience. But 20 years from now, if he keeps this up, right, that person's an executive. They're not partying on the weekend. They're not, you know, working 69 hours a week, nice, and partying on the weekends with no wife, you know, with lots of girlfriends, no wives and kids. They have kids and families and they do different things at work. They're going to have money, right? Going to be on the boats and the planes. So you open yourself up to new advertisers, new types of content, new inside jokes, right? The jokes that weren't today aren't going to work. You know, you're going to be telling a joke about, you know, how to, uh, how to do a good tax loss harvest, right? When you have a big sales commission month. So to your point, I, I think all that stuff, I, I'm always interested in how that stuff evolves. And, and that's a classic. I feel like his audience band is in a 10-year age range right now. And if he keeps it up, it will, it will just slide up and make them more relevant to more premium advertisers, as it were. Barstool is one of the only, I know I keep mentioning Barstool. They're one of the few sites where I've seen like, it seems like they keep college kids. For 20 years now, they stay relevant with college and 20-somethings. That is, this isn't a Barstool pod, but a lot of sales bro reminds me of that vibe. It's remarkable to be able to do something like that. Yeah, that will change. There's going to be a competitor at some point that comes in. And believe me, Portnoy's done an amazing job growing that brand. And I'm not trying to say that he is vulnerable in any way. We have John Boy Media that's trying it, but I don't know if they have personalities. They have content. That's the thing. You have to put yourself out there to be vulnerable in order to grow it. And you know, Portnoy did a great job, and obviously uh, Ross Pomerantz is doing you know something similar in, a, in more of a niche. Anyway, I think that was a really good interview. That's the sort of stuff we like where someone's got multiple touch points. They're willing to go into how the pie breaks down for them. And they're willing to experiment with things like apparel and investment arms and the way he kind of crafts these advisory roles to kind of tap into his audience. Super smart. The cri- who are the crypto guys, the brothers, the Pompliano brothers who do crypto and uh, sports? They kind of do the same thing. They, they take investments and advisory roles and promote them to their audience. And, and that's a big, um, you know, there is a little bit of a disclosure thing there. But if you cover all those bases, I think that's a great model. The other thing I notice is everyone we speak to and our own experience too with apparel 
is that you can kind of get these like little spikes, but it's it's almost never a reliable a reliable income stream. You know, so something to be mindful of if if you're out there thinking about you know going all in on just t-shirts, it's very hard to make that work over the long run. Great, good episode with Ross. We will be back weekly. We will be updating on our new venture and walking you guys through what we're doing, the good, the bad, the ugly. So stick with us. And remember, Jason, it's going to be a lot of ugly. There will be. (laughs) We always joke that the way we do, we sound much smarter on the pod. The way we do things is we walk around and press buttons. And then when one, it's like an experiment with rats, you know, like where they got to find the thing that has the food. And then once they find it, you just keep hitting it. That's kind of how we, we do business. So you'll hear about all our incorrect presses. And Jason, what should people do if they like the show? They should tell two friends. Well, you know how these things start. One guy tells another guy something, and then he tells two friends, and they tell two friends, and they tell their friends, and so on, and so on, and so on. You know how these things go. All right. (laughs) Tell two friends. Thanks for listening. See you. 